Hi friend, this is Alex McRobbs, founder of The Mindful Life Practice, and you're listening to the Sober Yoga Girl podcast. I'm a Canadian who moved across the world to the Middle East at age 23, and I never went back. I got sober in 2019, and I now live full-time in Bali, Indonesia. I've made it my mission to help other women around the world stop drinking, start yoga, and change their lives through my online Sober Girls Yoga community. You're not alone, and a sober life can be fun and fulfilling. Let me show you how. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Sober Yoga Girl. I'm so excited. Running this show, I've gotten to meet the coolest people, and one of which who I am sitting with here today is Daniel Patterson. And if you're on TikTok, like he's pretty TikTok famous for like his TikTok videos and um, you know, dancing videos and his his really inspirational messages about sobriety. And so I'm super excited that he's here today and he's gonna share a little bit about his sober journey with us and how he got to where he is today. And he's so he runs a sober community, he's a mental health advocate, he's also a former educator and was a school principal, which I just learned, which is really cool. <laughs> so <laughs> how are you? I'm great. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh- I'm excited to be here and I love, I love the sober community. I love me some sober TikTok, and it's really funny how it has evolved because I had no intention of ever posting about sobriety on TikTok when I got on TikTok. Um, but here we are. So you never know. And how long have you been sober for? I have been sober eight years and one, two, three, four months. Wow. And so yeah. when did you, when did you start? go on TikTok. When did you start? That? I went, I started TikTok around two, two years ago, maybe mm-hmm. at the most. And my footprint um, professionally was in education always. I was a school teacher for 10 years. And then I was a high school assistant principal for four years. And then I spent the last several years, just up until November, actually of 2022, building therapeutic schools. So um, schools for students who struggle with substance abuse or substance use disorder, I should say, or mental health disorders. Um, So I've always been an educator. So that is when I got on TikTok, that was kind of what I was talking about. And I don't know what made me pop off and talk about being sober because I hadn't ever done it before, really. I mean, I had mentioned it in some books and people knew, but I had never really made it into any kind of formal message until I did. I I, I need to go back and look and figure out what the first video, sober video I did was, because I honestly, I don't remember. That's so interesting because for myself, it was like, I remember the moment when I started sharing on social media, like I remember the posts that I wrote. Um, And that's interesting to me how it just, it sounds like it almost came like naturally sort of to you or through you. Yeah. And, and I spent, I didn't talk on TikTok for a long time. I was just dancing and I would put like different inspirational messages or whatever with the dancing. And so I was, for lack of a better term, like dancing around the topic, like insinuating that I was sober, you know, like we do recover and keep going and things like that, but I hadn't actually verbalized and kind of, you know, opened up about my own sobriety specifically. Mm -hmm. And, um, Another question for you. What was I going to ask you? Oh, yes. Okay. Being an educator and talking about sobriety, like how did that, because I remember for me, that was like a really 
I was really worried about my reputation as a teacher and what parents would think. Like, how did you feel about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I didn't tell anyone. for yeah. So the last year and a half that I was working in public education, I was sober, but I didn't say a word um, publicly because of, I didn't want people to be rethinking every decision I had made or applying their yeah. you know judgment to me. And I had done a good job of keeping the lines very clearly drawn between, you know, Daniel who sits at home at night and drinks a fifth of vodka and Daniel, who is like the high achieving school administrator, teacher of the year. I kept those lives very separate, um, even from my colleagues, really. So I didn't talk about it. Um, and then what I was working in a therapeutic setting, everyone who works for the school essentially is in recovery. You know, all of the therapists, all of the teachers, all of the staff. Um, so it's just almost more weird if you're not in recovery than if you are. <laughs> so I got really used to talking about it and just like owning it. And I think that is definitely why I felt comfortable talking about it. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I guess maybe that speaks to like the type of professionals that are drawn to work in like the, the mental health, the therapeutic realm are more. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think you have to go through some shit to be drawn to that. The intensity of working in a therapeutic setting, especially with adolescents is it's, it's intense. It's highly rewarding, but it's, you know, you have to compartmentalize and really own your own, be really take inventory of your own trauma and your own reaction and not make it about you <laughs> when, mm -hmm. when you're working with a dysregulated detoxing teenager, you know, right. if, if they're throwing a chair at you, you're just like, well, at least you didn't hit me, you know? Mm -hmm. But honestly, that sounds really dramatic. They're really lovely, normal, typical. I honestly, if you lined up all the class of them in a class from a public high school, you would not know which one. And I said, pick which one is from the therapeutic high school and which one is from the public high school. It, it would be 50-50. You would never know. And that's the thing about addiction is that it just, it could care less what you look like, how much you make, where you live, all of it. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Yeah. So tell me a bit about your journey before sobriety. So you were teaching and living in California and like, what was the, what was your life like? Oh, um, <laughs> my life, my, <laughs> I went to college in Oregon, graduated, um, met my wife in college. We've been married almost 18 years. Um, I lived in Las Vegas for a few years and then she got into law school in California. So we moved out here started teaching out here and good on paper is a good way to describe it. You know, I checked all the boxes, um, I had my master's degree and owned a home and blah, 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 all of that kind of stuff. But had always struggled with mental health as a child, um, depression, anxiety, and um, discovered alcohol as really the, the key, the wrong key, but a key to opening a door to confidence and feeling not feelings, if that makes sense, to, mm -hmm. to nullify. And alcohol was certainly my drug of choice, um, you know, I've messed around with other things, but nothing was like drinking. Nothing was like drinking. It was what I loved the most, um, more than myself, more than my wife, more than my kids, more than anything. I, I would choo choose it over anything. 
and that's really hard to say out loud, but it's the truth. Um, so it was a shell game, you know, it was just a smoke and mirrors. And I will say that the last four years of my drinking, I call it landing the plane when I knew I wanted to stop. And the, the time between when I knew and when I did is called landing the plane. Up until that point, I knew I had a problem and I didn't care. I was like, take me early, YOLO, I don't care, I'll die. I'm just going to, I'd rather drink and, and live this little life than not drink and live this long life. But in those last four years, I was making a more of a conscious effort to get to therapy and to try to challenge myself, like how many days can you go? And, you know, those kinds of things to see if I could fix myself, <laughs> which I think we all try to do try to fix myself, which I could not. So I stopped fighting. I love that analogy of landing the plane. Yeah. Because look at, look at this. Oh my gosh. I love it. It's my tagline. Land the plane, baby. I've never heard that Everyone's got their own. Yeah. It's turbulent. You know, some people circle the runway. You could do all kinds of things with that Mm -hmm. analogy, but that's what I call it. Landing the plane. And I think we can all relate to that. Like, cause there was a point in time when I don't know when it began, when I started Googling, like how to quit drinking, but like it began at some point and there was like a journey for a long time. And I remember there was like a four month period of me being like, well, I can't do it because I have this vacation or that thing or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and that's totally, that's totally what it was. Yeah. You, you start to land it. And I used to do all of my, my sober recon when I was drunk. If I had just the right amount of drunk in me, I was like, okay, I can do it. I'm going to quit. And I'd be like, yeah. And I would start Googling like sober celebrities and how much weight will I lose if I get sober and just, you know, all of the things, validations, affirmations. And then I would wake up the next day, super hungover and be like, well, maybe tomorrow, (laughs) you know, maybe tomorrow. And I did that for a long, long time. Wow. And did yeah. your family, like, did your wife sense that you had an, an issue with drinking or what yes. was that? Yeah. Oh yeah. She didn't sense it. She, yeah. she knew it. And I remember even early on in our marriage, maybe we had moved to California. So we, I was like 25 or 26. So like a good decade before I stopped drinking her printing me out um, a chapter from the big book, from the AA big book. Um, and buying me a coin that says one day at a time that I still have in my wallet to this day. Um, and I was like, ah, nah, nah, I put the, but, but at the same time I put the coin in my wallet, right? You see, I was, I had these contrary actions. I was like, I threw away the papers, but I kept the coin, um, which is kind of symbolic because I always was burying the reality that I had a problem in that I knew, but I didn't give a shit. I, I did not care because everyone had a problem and I was entitled to my fun and I did all of the things I was supposed to do, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. So she was super uh, in tune with my problem. She did not enable me. She held me pretty accountable. Um, But certainly I agree that, I could only stop when I was ready to stop. Mm-hmm. Like anytime I tried to stop for her, even even when our first daughter was born, you would think that would shake it, right? Oh, that gives me a reason. That's a motivation. No, I didn't stop. Um, 
And that's how messed up alcohol is. Just gets its grip on you. Mm-hmm. Doesn't right. let go. Yeah. So. so what was that moment like for you? Like when, what was the pivotal moment when you quit drinking and how did you quit? Oh, <laughs> the, I hallucinated. I had hallucinations on. Oh so I went to bed on New Year's Eve, 2014, you know, not a moderate send, not a full send, not a, not a DP original drunk, but like pretty good. Got up the next morning and my daughter was three and my wife and I, the three of us went to meet another family for breakfast. And this is the kind of shit that my wife did. She's so good at this passive aggressivity. Like she wouldn't like, she would plan things early, right? Like we're ha- we have an 8 a.m. breakfast on New Year's Day. Which now sober Daniel, like I'm like, yes, that's great. I'll have been up for, you know, three hours, had three cups of coffee. I'm good to go. Maybe even a, a run. But drunk Daniel, oh no. So we get to this restaurant. It's very like eggy and steamy and just hot and just and I start just tripping out, getting super claustrophobic. I feel like I'm Buddy the Elf sitting at this like little table and I'm a giant human. Oh my gosh. So I go out to my car, I turn on the AC, I put my seat back and there's this industrial van parked next to me. And there's a guy sitting in the passenger seat and he's like pressed up against the window. And I literally don't know if this was, if he was there or not. But when I saw him, a voice said that that is you. Like, this is you. Like I was seeing myself in the future I know this sounds really weird, but I had, and it scared the living shit out of me. And I immediately went to the doctor. I went to urgent care and they were like, why are you here? (laughs) You know, you're filling out the questionnaire. Where do I put hallucinations? It doesn't have a checkbox for that. Uh, So I'm just, um, had to go. And because New Year's day, like everything's closed and, the way that it fell was the second, I don't know. I was able to go to Dr. January 2nd. I know that to my primary care, Dr. Justin. And I had a, a full blown, like come to Jesus, just like open conversation. I finally just was honest. And so I stopped drinking. I, I haven't had a drink since. Wow. Yeah. So that was that was the confirmation. It kind of snuck up on me because I loved to schedule my quit dates. I don't know if you ever did this, but I'd be like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to quit right after this, you know? And I'd pick, (laughs) I'd pick some abstract event and then it would give myself enough time to sabotage myself. Mm -hmm. So this one just snuck up on me. It was like, boo, like, no, like universe just grabbed me by the collar and just chucked me. And I was like, okay, this is a sign that I need to listen to. So the other logical times when I had a really bad hangover for like three or four days, or I did made a really poor choice and got in like huge fight or something, none of those compelled me to stop. But this was very subtle. It was very private. It was very scary. And um, it was exactly what I needed to, to take a break, which was all I committed to doing was like, take a break. I wasn't, didn't put a ring on it. I'm like, I'm just going to stop for like 30 days let this medicine kick in, make sure I'm not losing, you know, my faculties here. And then, or I just kept going. 
Wow. That's that. <laughs> and then what, what tools did you use? Like, were you part of, did you do AA? Were you part of, um, um programs or, uh, so therapy was really important to me. Um, Jessica St. Clair is my, was my therapist and I always say her full name because she saved my life. Um, she, I, she helped me with the pre-quitting phase. So I was going to see her before when I knew I had a problem and we didn't, we danced around it in circles, but we were really unpacking a lot of the trauma I had as a child, which was pretty significant. Um, and so maintaining that for the first few months, I didn't do anything because I didn't want anyone to know. Uh, so I was just literally white knuckling it, um, taking the medicine, checking in with my doctor, going for walks, um, reading Quitlet, listening to podcasts, you know, the whole starter pack, right? Just like yeah. the whole starter pack and just being like, what is life now? What is life? Why are, why are the days so damn long? <laughs> when you first get sober, 24 hours feels like 48 hours. And you're just like, what are you, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> what are we, what are we doing here? So I, I, writing for me became a big cathartic tool. I would write a lot. And then eventually I did go to AA. Um, um, my therapist challenged me to go because I needed to, to check my ego. I felt like I was better than AA, like the kinds of people that would go to AA, like, were not my kind of people, which saying it out loud again, God, I sound like an asshole, but that's what I thought. You know, I had all these assumptions about what it was like. So I drove like 45 minutes out of town because I was a principal and I did not want to see any parents. Mm -hmm. And who do I see? A dad of a kid I know. I'm like, hey, he's like, hey. <laughs> well, I guess that's that. Um, I guess I can just go to a local meeting now. <laughs> Save some gas. <laughs> um, so I... Uh, in terms of like healing for, for me, I didn't ever though complete like the 12 steps. I didn't have a, a sponsor. Um, I went for community and, and then, you know, I went for community, stayed for friendship and then eventually started working in the therapeutic space. And that became my sort of recovery. If that makes sense, like working in the field, working amidst education and, substance abuse and mental health disorders in a high school setting with everyone around me who had a unique story, including every kid and every employee, that organism in itself was almost a recovery program. In fact, I, I think it was. Yeah. That must've so, been powerful to be part it of it. It was. And, and I did that. I was there 20, what, 2018 to through 2022. Yeah. So four years there. Wow. It was great. Mm -hmm. And then, so then you got on TikTok and started sober TikToking. And how did your community come about? Like, what's the journey for, I, for that? I don't, oh, for, for my sobertunity community? Yeah. Um. So I, I never knew, like, I was excited when I got a thousand followers on TikTok. Um, I just never thought that it would be something that I would be on, but 
something about the way that I tell my stories or the approach or whatever, um, people either love me or they hate me. There's typically nowhere in between. People don't aren't usually like neutral about their opinion of me and they make that known and I'm that's okay, right? Not, no vice, no virtue, but I it started growing and I love to help people and I would get a lot of DMs and a lot of, hey, can you help me? Can I talk to you? Can can I get on a call with you? And Again, I have a I run a full time company, um, so I consult for schools. I I write books. I travel and I speak. I'm busy. I have three kids. I'm married, so I wanted to create a way to be able to hold space and and hold community for people that were using the virtual space like TikTok to find it mm-hmm. in an exploratory way. So I just opened up a free group in September. And I did a free group September, October, November, and December. Um, and those people, a lot of those people are still in the group. And then eventually I started charging a little bit of money if people could afford it uh, to be in the group and formalize it. And I brought everyone together because I was running all of these micro groups. So it's a it's not a um, how-to it's a can do. So we talk about all of the different modalities from AA to refuge recovery, to smart recovery, to different apps you can use in podcasts. And we have a book club and, you know, they're reading, we are the luckiest and Laura McCowan's coming on a zoom to talk about her book with us. And so it's, it's a really cool community. Um, And again, when I started the free group, I didn't intentionalize like, oh, I'm going to use this and and make a bunch of money and grow this huge thing. In fact, I capped, I've capped the community at 250 members. There, you, there's no, that's it. Because uh, I don't want to grow like a big machine. I'm not interested in making, being the next big app or whatever, you know, because I want it to feel like a community. I want to grow roots mm-hmm. and I want to go down deep with people. I want to run a marathon with these people. So that's mm-hmm. the community. And it's what I lacked when I started, right? Because I was so horrified of um, shame and I didn't necessarily align with some of the virtues of a more religious context, I guess, of a recovery program. So um, I wanted to create a space that was either no cost or low cost where people could just get comfortable talking about it and meet some other people who maybe could make them feel seen and heard. And I feel like we, we've done that, but it's a, definitely a work in progress. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And uh, I love how you describe that as just like a collection of like podcasts and books and book club and resources, because I think that's like what a lot of people need in, in yeah. the early days of sobriety, like just finding finding what resonates with you, finding what works with you, finding sort of who inspires you. Yeah. And understanding, I mean, my philosophy is there's more than one way to recover. Mm-hmm. And I don't sit in sober splain. You know, I love people that the traditionalists, let's call them, you know, there's one set of rules and that's that. And I'm like, well, yeah. if I can order an entire Thanksgiving dinner from my phone and have it delivered to my house, I'm pretty sure I can find multiple ways to recover. So, you know, it's just different ways to do it, but also 
I've encouraged some people to look at traditional programs who for the, just assumed that they were too good, you know, and they yeah. love it. So it's just about keeping an open mind and understanding that you are in charge of, you're the captain of your own ship and other people can support you and you're not in it alone. It doesn't mean you need to be doing it the same way or the same speed with the same ideology or religious context or whatever, you know, it's just supporting each other and sitting in the soup together. Mm-hmm. Um, what were your biggest challenges in going sober? Uh, meeting my feelings, <laughs> you know, like uh, vodka had been my ride or die, my co-pilot, my best friend, but more than that had been like the giant pacifier the weighted blanket we'll say that kept everything at bay. Yeah. And um, of course, if you're listening to this, you probably understand the hamster wheel that is drinking, you know, cause you, I was drinking because I was anxious and depressed. And so that only made me more anxious and depressed, which then required me to drink more. So that was a really good plan, but nonetheless, I did that for like 19 years. Um, mm. When I stopped drinking, I didn't know who I was. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I realized I was in a job I didn't necessarily want to be in. I had pursued a career I wasn't necessarily that I had known, I think was not my like number one choice. Um, But I was not ever positioning myself to take risks because I always needed alcohol to be a variable that I could control. And by doing that, I had to create an environment that lent itself to drinking. So when I stopped drinking, um, I poured myself more into work, more into work as a principal. And um, it was not until I had some serious tragedy, um, some huge trauma and when I was about a year and a few months sober um, at work that where my best friend that I had taught with for 11 years, he died by suicide at work. Um And that happened in April of 2016. And then I ended up leaving my job in um, December of 2016. I took a mental health leave and I never left uh, or never went back. So um, having to like face into a huge life change and a lot of pain without alcohol was ridiculous. I was like, what, what is like, how do you do this? How do you process things without alcohol? Um, Good, bad, or ugly, you know? Um, But specifically the dark times, the down times, I always used alcohol as like a security blanket, a liquid support animal, you know? So I think meeting my feelings was really hard. And then understanding that, I had been not a fraud, but like, you know, but I felt like one living two lives, essentially being this professional role, this really outgoing person, this really social person. And then on the inside being a raging alcoholic who was deeply depressed, suicidal, and felt like he had no idea who he was or what he wanted. All in the same body. I bet I know I bet there's a lot of people that can relate to that. I can relate to that as well. And definitely the 
um, having this dual life of like all this, like partying and drinking and then being able to be like, I was also a pretty successful teacher. People would say that I was like, you know, one of the the great teachers at the school or like yeah. standing. And then, you know, every night I was drinking at home and people just yeah. had no idea. Totally. Mm-hmm. It is a lot of that. I was a very isolative drinker. Mm-hmm. So very calculated. Now, of course, if it was like a wedding or something that was socially acceptable to get really drunk, you better believe I would get really drunk and then some. But for example, if people were going to go out to happy hour or something, I might make sure I got there early so I could like pound a few drinks before and then have a normal amount while everyone else was there and then head home and drink some more mm. before work. Whereas people, my colleagues wouldn't drink before and they would have a drink or maybe two there and then they wouldn't drink at all when they got home. So I had no off switch. Mm-hmm. And instead of dealing with that, I was just like, well, then I just need to hide the on switch. You know, I just need to, you know, put it over here so nobody sees it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what has been like, from getting sober, what have been some of the best things that have come from your sobriety? Oh man. Um, I mean, I feel like my whole life has, this sounds so dumb and so cheesy. And these are the things that drunk Daniel hated hearing. So I apologize in advance to those of you who are on the fence, right? Nothing about my life except for my marriage and being a father is the same, but those two things are infinitely better than they were. Mm-hmm. But remember I told you I was writing 500 words a day the day after my best friend died at work I my first article was published on the front page of the Huffington Post um I wrote for the LA Times I contributed to all kinds of national TV appearances and and podcasts and and this is when I was really focusing on parenting and like teen the teenage side of the house really like more stiff content and it was more stuffy, but, um, I quit my job. I've started two companies. I've traveled all around the country speaking. I have an agent to write another book. I just got hired to do a commercial, which I can't talk about yet, but like all of these things, none of them would have happened if I kept drinking Mm -hmm. and none of them were planned either. I had no plan. I was just trying to get through January to prove my wife and myself, like, I don't have a problem. <laughs> and now make your mess your message, I guess. So here I am. Um, but it really has solidified in the last year and a half. Being on TikTok has really changed. And then having my own podcast um, that we started in October called Sobriety Uncensored has elevated my exposure. And so there's been some learning there and it's been hard. Um, not like poor me, but you know, the more you share, the more you open yourself to scrutiny and people that want to inform you that you are not their cup of tea. So, and I don't always do well with that. Mm -hmm. For me with that stuff, I've actually found it okay when it's strangers. Like I can isolate the stranger and just be like, okay, whatever. But I've, I don't know if you've had this, but I've had some conflict with people that I'm actually friends with because of some of the things that I've been, that I've shared on social media. Um, 
which has been really sad, like really hard because, you know, I share my opinion. And then like, I'm thinking of one, there was a year, a few years ago, there was like a mental health fundraiser that was selling beer for mental health. Oh my! And I was (laughs) like, I strongly at my core disagree with this. And, um, and then I got into an argument with someone that that I was very good friends with in my childhood who said, she said like all mental health fundraisers are good. And I was like, I strongly disagree. <laughs> right. Like I, I love mental health fundraisers and I used to love craft beer. I just don't think that we should be selling this like substance that causes depression to fundraise for mental health. Yeah. Like, and then it ended up becoming this really um this like pretty big conflict where I don't I actually don't talk to that person anymore. Um, and that's been the hardest thing for me because I think when it's a stranger, I can just be like, oh, this person's like whatever they don't know what they're talking about but when it's like a real person and you're like i know that you're a good person and you have feelings and that's where i find it difficult i don't know if you've experienced that yeah well i think that if you look at the way that friendships shift and i think the reckoning that a lot of my friendships were not in fact friendships Mm. um has been interesting and not in a judgmental way not in a hierarchy of who is better or who is worse but when the love language is drinking and the love language is watching sports and doing things, mistaking these, these outings for meaningful relationships. Um, I learned the hard way. Um, first when I got sober, um, but I hadn't really told anybody, but specifically when I, when I went through the trauma of losing my friend and I left my job where I had been for 12 and a half years, I hear from almost no one from that school at all ever um and a lot of them do not like that i talk about it they don't like what i'm doing they don't like that i'm um public um some of them are super supportive but yeah like people that i thought it's just funny people i thought were like my my lifelong friends i have seen or talked to less than three times since i left the school in 2016 um so when people show you who they are believe them right it's just mm-hmm. keep keep moving um so i my circle is so small it's a dot i i don't let a lot of people in um and it seems that codependency is is an issue for me you know i get really attached to people um so that's one thing i'm working on in therapy is just maintaining boundaries and Mm -hmm. setting them early and people don't like that always um Mm -hmm. but i imagine uh my life is a a stage auditorium like imagine you alex you're like on the stage you're giving a concert you're like taylor swift it's the heiress tour right you're just like in the middle of the venue and there's people in the VIP in the front row. And then there's people all the way back in the nosebleeds that you cannot see. So it makes me feel better to think about friendships shifting than being lost. And they've moved from VIP to nosebleed. And conversely, there's people that I didn't even know who were way up there who are now down in the front. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about life is that you can open up new doors and new windows to relationships. And and some of my deepest, closest friendships are the ones that I've developed in just like the last three years. And I'm 43. 
but I don't have anyone from high school. Like my wife is like, you know, all of her friends, she collects friends. Like I collect a sparkling water, you know? So she has friends from every age and stage of her life and everywhere we go, people want to talk to her and she knows all of her childhood friends. I am like maybe Facebook friends with a few people I grew up with, but I have no relationship with anyone from high school, very few people from college, basically no one from 12 years of working. And so, and I've been this lone wolf entrepreneur, author, speaker. So I've been really working on trying to let myself be open to friendship because I feel like I'm broken in a certain way. So that got really intense. <laughs> and um, I, you, she shared that, you know, your some of your closest friends are from the past three years. And do you think like sobriety helped in a way in building those friendships? Uh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Because um, sober people are everywhere. Yeah. They're just hidden. You just can't see them. It's like mm-hmm. a Where's Waldo book, you know, if you, if you know mm-hmm. that reference, but mm-hmm. I was like, there's no sober people. I don't know any sober people because I was drunk and I thought sober people were boring. I I was irritated at them for being happy. I was convinced that they were just like faking it to make themselves feel better. Um, So, but I honestly think like the trauma of being bullied throughout high school and then overcorrecting in college and using alcohol as my main way of communicating and my main social like avenue brought up there. So there's like shame and being bullied. There's shame and being too drunk all the time in college. And then when I like left my work after I lost my best friend, I was just like, I'm taking a break from people. Yeah. Like I was so broken. I didn't feel like I could be friends with anybody. I didn't feel like I deserved friendships. I just poured all of my energy into my family, into work. And that's no way to live. Mm-hmm. That's no way to live. So slowly I've been opening up and I've developed some really close friendships. Um, and they're not all perfect, you know? Um, and I still have had some adversity there, but you got to risk it to get the biscuit, you know? So I'm I'm willing to put myself out there and have some friendships because sometimes you can be surrounded by 175,000 TikTok followers and feel totally alone. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can and, totally relate to that. So, and and well, I, not don't that get I me wrong, though. I, no, but I'm just saying. 5,000 followers, but. <laughs> and But I like solitude. And I'm not saying, I mean, yeah. I'm not trying to say that like, oh, look at me, I'm so fancy. But I'm just okay. saying, I, sometimes I feel more connected with my followers than I do people in real life. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I started TikTok for me or for other people, you know, it's yeah. like one of those things. Yeah. I needed an outlet. I wanted to feel connected. And it has proved to be more good than bad. Um, and it's opened up a lot of doors for me. So I don't know. Yeah. And I've met some really cool people. I've made I'm friends in real life with some people that I met through TikTok or through Instagram. Um, which is so weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of my most of my friends I met through um, a social media app, through Instagram, through yeah. Facebook. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So if people want to find you or get connected with you or learn about your work, you have your podcast. Um, yeah. Where can people find you? 
Um, Patterson Perspective is my handle on Insta and TikTok uh, and Facebook um, for the old school people. Um, and uh, PattersonPerspective.com or Sobertunity.com. Um, although the websites are linked, so you can easily go back from one to the one to the other. But yeah, I mean, I mostly hang out on TikTok, I would say. I'm there every day, probably four to five times a day. <laughs> um, just hanging out. I don't batch content. I don't read, I don't redo content. I don't pre-plan content. I just do you just do if it I have something to, I do it minutes before I post it. Wow. I don't put any um extra love into it because I want it to just be what it is. Because mm-hmm. I've done that before. I'm like, I'm going to spend hours editing this and it's going to go viral. And then my like three ants watch it and they're like, that was great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I don't know. I think sobriety is the best gift that you can ever give yourself, honestly. And my philosophy with the concept of sober curious, which is really trendy right now. I think there's a difference between being sober curious and sober curiosity. Sober curiosity is like, I think to be truly sober curious, you have to live life without alcohol long enough to know the difference. Just thinking about what it might be like doesn't do much. And I think at least for me, I got stuck there a long time. Well, I'm thinking about quitting. I'm researching it. I'm staying in that, that consideration phase and just, I'm just going to stay there for years and years and years and years versus I'm going to commit to a hundred days and, and not just like sit at home and sulk for a hundred days, but I'm going to live my life for a hundred days. Um, I'm going to go all in on the healing, all in on the recovery, and then I'll reevaluate. That's my call to action. You don't have to put a ring on it. It doesn't have to be forever. But conceivably, if you're like, I'm going to take 30 days off and you never leave your home and you never talk to anybody about it and you never dig in, that's really not any different. Mm -hmm. Right? You're just living the same existence without booze. Yeah. So food for thought. So I have one more question for you, which kind of... um works on that theme a little bit is um, what advice would you give to someone who is curious about quitting drinking or maybe in the early stages? I mean, I think you owe it to yourself to try Mm. your, your inner child, the, the potential in you. And I'm not saying this has to be from a career perspective, just because I reimagined my career doesn't mean you need to, but I honestly believe that problematic drinking is connected to some sort of trauma, some sort of energetic block that needs to be cleared, that needs to be addressed. And the only way to do that is to put in the work. And the return on that investment is is infinite. It's hard. It's lonely at times. It's shitty. You're going to feel all kinds of feelings. You're going to want to quit the quitting. But it's worth it. And um, that's why I say just give it a try and see how it goes. So, yeah. This was awesome. It was so great to get to meet you and to hear 
bits of your story. And I really enjoyed hearing the different parts about you being an educator and a teacher and what, what, what that was like, because I can really relate. And yes, thank you. Yeah. I just want to thank you so much for your time and being yeah, here. Yeah. It's more fun to, t- I mean, it's seriously more fun to talk to somebody, you know, when you get a chance to sit down and talk to somebody yeah. versus a, you know, 15 to 30 second to one minute clip, um, you know, it changes the energy. And I appreciate totally. all of the work that you are doing in this space. And your whole vibe is just so calming. I feel at peace. I feel at peace. So thank oh, you. Thank you. You know, I would say the same thing about you. You have like a very grounded energy. I was wondering, like, do you practice meditation or yoga or have I something? do. I, yeah. I practice meditation and I uh, practice Wim Hof breathing okay. and ice baths. Yeah. Cool. So, I can uh, I can sense that from your energy that you have some kind of like mindfulness practice. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I work. I that's what I work on the most is trying to quiet the mind. Yeah. Because or else drunk Daniel will just run circles around me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And uh, absolutely, thank you. Talk soon. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hi, friend. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sober Yoga Girl Podcast. This community wouldn't exist without you here, so thank you. It would be massively helpful if you could subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast so it can reach more people. If we haven't met yet in real life, please come get your one-week free trial of the Sober Girls Yoga membership and see what we're all about. Sending you love and light wherever you are in the world.